were surrounded by slavers and forced to use your skills and to develop them for the glory of Pharaoh, not God. You grow older and more skilled. Your abilities are recognized by those around you. And because of your forced labor, you learn how to make wonderful and intricate things. One day, a man shows up. Moses, who says that God has heard your people and the cries of your father. He says that God is going to free you. And one day, after many plagues and miracles, God frees you and your family from Egypt. He leads you through the Red Sea to freedom, and you come to the base of Mount Sinai. You wait at the base of the mountain while Moses goes up and speaks to God. And one day, Moses comes to you and says to you, Bazalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, God has filled you with his spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every craft, so that you may construct his tabernacle. You are to use your skill to make all that is necessary for Aaron and his descendants to serve as high priest. This is Bazalel's story. A skilled craftsman who developed his abilities in a pagan world, serving a pagan king, building pagan things. I've had enough conversations with students and professionals to know that many feel enslaved, like their work only serves to build up some earthly master and to line the pockets of someone rich. I've heard so many who see their occupations as unfulfilling, dreadful, and meaningless. And while I agree that some occupations are more fulfilling than others, I also believe that many find little joy in their plain occupations because they think of them as secular. Today I want to see what Scripture teaches us about secular work. So please read with me starting in Exodus chapter 31. Verse 1. The Lord spoke also to Moses. Look, I have appointed by name Bazalel, son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with God's Spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every craft to design artistic works in gold, silver, and bronze to cut gemstones for mounting, and to carve wood for work in every craft. I have also selected Aholiab, son of Ahishmach, of the tribe of Dan, to be with him. I have put wisdom in the heart of every skilled artisan in order to make all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on top of it, and all of the other furnishings of the tent, the table with its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all of its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils, the basin with its stand, the specially woven garments, both the holy garments for the priest Aaron and the garments for his son to serve as priest, the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the sanctuary. They must make them according to all that I have commanded you. So let's take a breath and step back and look at this passage from a bird's eye view. First, in this passage, we see two types of work. We could describe these as secular and ministry. Basalel, Aholiab, and the other artisans are all gifted in artistic work. They cut gems, shaped metal. They built structures and made furniture. These were people who learned their trades while being enslaved to Pharaoh 
They did their work for a pagan ruler. And so we could call their work, even though it was God's people doing it, secular in a sense. The word secular means it's detached from religion or a spiritual framework. And since their work was for Pharaoh to serve someone who they didn't revere in any way, we could say that they were just doing the physical act of laying bricks in mortar, of joining wood, of shaping different physical metals. These are the types of jobs that we often refer to as secular occupations. They are the plumbers, the accountants, the engineers. No one calls them pastor, priest, or minister, but they merely work for a wage and go home. Yet, even after the Israelites were freed, God still called them to do the same labors, to use the skills that they had developed up under Pharaoh for him. His tabernacle needed to be built, and his priests needed their garments made. Someone had to beat the gold into a chest plate and adorn it with jewels for the priests as God commanded. So we could look at this one type of work and call it secular. And we could look at another type of work we see here, that of ministry, and say that it is religious and spiritual work. And we could see the priest mentioned in verse 10 as something greater. We could speak about how the priests were the mediators between God and man, offering sacrifices, wearing the garments made for them by the secular workers. We could imply that there is some distinction of value, that the ministry position is the aim and the really valuable work. I mean, I feel this pressure in our culture. There can be a tendency in Christian circles to separate Christian work from secular work. And it's helpful in one sense to have this distinction. It helps us to see that the two types of work are different in one way. Ministries tend to be restorative by their very nature. They are incarnational, and by that I mean that they are particular roles that people go into and use their gifts to meet people where they are, to apply the love of Christ and the gospel to that situation with the hope of making new disciples, with lives being changed, with God receiving worship where he hadn't received it before. Now, it's true that someone can also do this in a non-ministry job. I'm not saying it can't or isn't done regularly in offices all around this town. But what I'm saying is that ministry positions are innately, by their very nature, designed to restore people to God. Non-ministry jobs can be done by a Christian or an atheist. The Christian may use their job as a platform for sharing the gospel. The atheist may use it to testify against God. The two are, by nature, different. Another difference is that it's the seasonal nature of ministry jobs. Before my wife and I moved down here to Auburn, we lived in Kentucky. And right across the border in Indiana, there was an Amazon packing facility. During certain times of the year, they will post jobs because of the anticipated rush of orders around certain holidays and events. So they put these seasonal jobs out there where you're only guaranteed a position for maybe a couple of months. As the need arises, they create new job positions. Ministry is this type of job. Ministers are seasonal workers. And what is the need that arose? The rift between God and man. 
In God's grace, he includes us in his work, equipping ministers for the sake of aiding man and God in the mending of their relationship. Isn't it ironic that he uses men who still need to be made right with God to call others to himself also? Before Christ, God used priests like Aaron in verse 10, who these artisans were making garments and altars and bowls for. Now God has sent his son to be our mediator and calls others to what Paul called in 1 Corinthians 5.18, the ministry of reconciliation. Ministers are pleading with those who are lost to submit their lives to God. Ministers are also constantly pleading with those who are believers to take every thought, desire, and action captive and submit it to Christ. But guess what? This is just a season. There's coming a day when preachers, teachers, apostles, and all the like are will not be anymore. One day our world will be made new, and as Jeremiah 31, 34 says, no longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. There's coming a day when we will all be taught by God himself and the gap between us and him and our hearts will evaporate. And just as sin and death, ministry will be no more. Second, secular jobs are not secular, but what we were made to do. We have to get this point if we are going to see how highly this passage views secular jobs. Secular jobs in and of themselves are not restorative in nature, like ministry positions. However, they are not secular. They are a different type of work from ministry, yes, but they are not less valuable. They are what image bearers do. Let's take a step back even further from a bird's eye view to like a satellite view. Look with me in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Being made in God's image is connected to us ruling in some way over the earth and everything on it. And in chapter 2 of Genesis, we see this play out when Adam sets Adam in the garden to keep and protect it and to name the animals. These non-ministry jobs like Adam's in the garden are what we were intended to do. God made us to make things, to work together in love and harmony so that our gifts would be combined and allow us to do things which we could not do on our own. It's why Adam and Eve were made to complement one another to work together in the garden and to help one another. And who would receive the glory but God alone? Who deserves to be praised for created, creating beings who are completely independent from one another, yet find unity and fulfillment in outdoing one another in honor and in using their skills to bring forth glorious things to honor their creator who brought them forth from the dust? When humans born in different countries who speak different languages, who have different cultural norms, 
happen to connect and happen to have just the right skills and pieces of information so that together they can make something glorious? Who else deserves praise but God for his sovereignty? He determines where they were born, who they were born to, the people in their lives. He determines the biological makeup of their minds and their bodies in the womb. The situations they progress through as they get older. And so that all of this combines in one moment in a chance meeting and out comes something beautiful. For example, let me tell you the the story of William Greatbatch. He was born in 1919, served in World War II, and received an electrical engineering degree afterwards using the GI Bill. While he was working for the school, he would talk with visiting brain surgeons when one day he heard about complete heart block, a situation where the heart stops pumping because of an electrical misfire. And so he thought about inventing the pacemaker, but he couldn't because of a lack of tiny electrical components to make something small enough to be implanted. Later in 1958, he happened to meet a Dr. William Chardick, and when he mentioned the pacemaker idea again, Dr. Chardick actually told him, of some new components that would allow him to make a small enough model. And within two weeks, they had built the first pacemaker. Within two years, they had designed one capable of being implanted into humans. And now it's estimated that over three million people worldwide have pacemakers in them, keeping their hearts pumping. You know, it's actually interesting that I was, I found this example, was writing about it a couple of days ago, and then pretty soon after, heard that one of my great uncles went into the hospital with some severe heart problems. Do you know what happened to be the thing that was the medical remedy for his heart issues? A pacemaker. Humans, whether they recognize God or not, are in the exact same situation as Adam. We use the skills God has taught us and given us, whether developed through enslavement in Egypt or in colleges in America to dig our hands into the God's beautiful creation so that we may make wonderful things. And only God deserves the glory for that. It's what we do now and before Jesus comes back and after God restores us to what we are intended to be, we will spend an eternity learning making glorious things to honor our God. Those made in the image of the Creator, they create. Some of you are going through college thinking about your occupation in light of the stability, prestige, or maybe the income that comes with it. Let God be the starting point for the profession you choose. God created you with specific talents, capacities, and passions Develop those. Ask others how they think you were gifted and seek God's will for how you may follow the way he made you into a profession that will allow you to pursue excellence and make things that glorify him. It may be that you are gifted in coding, so you go into software engineering so that you may write a program that aids in diagnosing medical issues. It may be that you go to trade school and learn how to weld so that you can make metal sculptures and highlight different beautiful attributes of God's creation. You may become an accountant 
so that you can work with nonprofit charities and help them to run efficiently on limited resources. All of these things glorify God. Working for an income, it's good, but it's not our aim in work. Our aim is to image our Creator, God. Without having this view of craftsmanship and work, we won't appreciate these men in Exodus 31. They are honored because they are capable of building great things to honor God. And now we come back to our text to see this point driven home. Here we see, finally, that God gives wisdom to all who work on this earth. Look with me in Exodus 31, verse 2. The Lord says, I have appointed by name Bazalel. And in verse 3, I have filled him with God's spirit and with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every craft. We read a couple chapters earlier, and then it's reaffirmed a couple verses below, that God also gave wisdom to every artisan that was in Israel who would help with this project. Sure, we can read this and think of it like something like the Matrix, where his spirit is like the computer that taught Neo Kung Fu. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie or not. But Neo, he lays back into this um, chair. They plug a cord into his head. They start the program. The music swells. Neo's flinching around. Then suddenly his eyes pop open and he says, I know Kung Fu. Sure, I believe God can do this with us. He can cause us to have skills or languages that we previously didn't know through his spirit. It's what he did on Pentecost. However, sometimes we think that that is the only marvelous way that God can accomplish things. Thinking in that way can cause, cause us to miss the constant, meticulous way that God rules his creation. I'm getting so used to my mask, I forgot that I had it on. Now, what I think is far more likely is that God's Spirit filled this craftsman so that he was a faithful man of God in applying his long-developed skills. The New American Commentary says it like this. Verse 3 does not say that God gave Bazael four things. The Spirit of God, skill, ability, knowledge. But correctly translated says that he gave Bazael mainly one thing, his spirit which then perfected Bazalel's wisdom, insight, knowledge, and work performance in general. The clearest translation of this Hebrew might be, I have filled him with God's Spirit in regards to wisdom, insight, and knowledge, and in every sort of work. In other words, the way the filling of the Spirit of God affected Bazalel was to enable him to be wiser, more insightful, more knowledgeable, and more capable of any sort of work to which God assigned him. Look at these craftsmen. God had been preparing them through the labor Pharaoh forced them through for their whole lives, so that when he freed them from Egypt, he would have the best artist available for his work. What this text means is that the Spirit of God acted in the lives of Bazalel and Aholiab and every other artist, so that their long-developed skills and crafts would be glazed over by the Spirit of God and His fruit. It was so that when Bazalel went about organizing and managing those who were working with him, he would be supernaturally godly patient 
and have that in his guidance as he approached the situation. It was so that when they ran into obstacles, his understanding and reasoning would be so divinely shaped, so anointed by the Spirit, that he would be able to overcome any issue and produce precisely what God showed Moses without any blemish or defect. But you are not like the Israelites. After Christ, all who believed are now adorned with the Holy Spirit. He is alive in you and seeks to bless you as you prepare for what He's calling you to. Your life is not divided into your secular work at school and your job and ministry at church and church events. No, God is using your school, your job, to shape and equip you. Be like Bazalel, who I believe it's pretty safe to assume was diligent in learning his trade in Egypt. He was faithful in the small things, those things that his earthly master required of him, so that when God required the most skilled artisan for his work, Bazalel was ready. Brothers and sisters, you are being trained now for the work that God is going to call you to in the future. You are learning the basics of your craft so that when God is ready to use that craft for his own glory, you will be prepared and he will receive the glory for having prepared you for it. In your classes and your jobs, do not settle for what is only required by your boss or your teacher. Pray. Ask the Spirit to train your heart to love making glorious things for God. Devote your mind and your attention to your job, giving your best as if you were serving the Lord, because in reality you are. Even if He is not the one directly giving you your assignments, you are still serving Him. You are being trained for His greater assignments. The two are not separate. One may seem more holy than the other, but they are both for God. One may seem more glorious than the other, but the mundane training is the foundation for the beautiful tabernacle He's going to call you to. Seek the fruits of the Spirit while you are being trained so that you may have the glaze of the Spirit ever sweetening your work on this earth, that in your labors you may find joy since your giftings come from God, that you may look back and see the way God directed your path, your missteps, so that you would be trained for the greater task ahead, that you may have peace of mind that comes with knowing that your non-ministry work is the same type of work that we're called to as image bearers. Just think about it for a second. We were made to rule the creation and to make glorious things so that our God would receive glory for his creatures made in his image. Just look around you in this physical building. This building is amazing. The size of it, the engineering that went into it, yet it was built by sinners who I am sure argued and were lazy at points, who most certainly did not give their absolute best in every step of the project all the way. And yet, by God's grace, this building has been used in, to aid in saving lost souls, an eternal issue. It's been a place where people know they can come to and know that God's word is going to be faithfully preached. Just like how the priest in verse 10 needed the artist to build, 
or else they could not perform their duty. Look further around in our world, just at humanity in general. We have a communication network that spans the globe. We have computers in our pockets, men and women in space, and some Tesla Roadster that's still shooting through our galaxy at some place. We have put men on the moon. We've built airplanes and speed cars. We've developed modern medicine to save countless lives through vaccines and antibodies and implants and more. We have been able, as a broken, divided, sin-riddled species, to make wonderful things. God is glorified in that, that even with sin messing us up so bad, His image as Creator still shines through. But how much more will it shine through when He has made all things new? How much more so when all of His people live and work under the anointing of the Spirit, bound together in perfect love, harmony, and cooperation? When all hearts are laboring to glorify God and not themselves? Our achievements as a broken human race will be barbaric in comparison. You as a Christian artisan, whether in engineering, chemistry, the medical field, construction, or whatever other non-ministry position, you are getting a taste now of what it will be like when we as a species, as people made back into what we were supposed to be, imaging God, are united together and anointed by the Spirit as we go forth and make things and image our Creator God. God is now, through His Spirit, redeeming your training and your vocation. His Spirit anoints you and gifts you so that you can subdue this earth and do so with excellence. Don't settle for the bare minimum. Recognize that your training has eternal value, both now and when sin is no more. Seek excellence in your craft to the glory of God. Be wary of pride. In your pursuit of excellence in your craft, Satan will seek to take your gift and use it to incite pride on your behalf, to make you think that you are great, to forget the source of your blessing, to forget that God chose your place and time of birth, that God chose your resources and connections, that God's Spirit is the fruit adorning your new life. Humble yourself. And remember to praise God from whom all blessings flow. You are clay in the hands of your maker. The clay pot does not cry out, praise me for who I am. No. The features of the pot that make it beautiful are the marks left by its maker's hand. Should you recognize ways that God has particularly gifted you, Satan will likewise tempt you to be afraid to think if you do too much, become too great in these areas, you will inevitably be consumed by pride. Just imagine that you have been selected out of several million of God's people to be the leader in a particular venture, like Bazalel being selected to make the tabernacle. The most honoring thing for Bazalel to do is to embrace the gifts that God has given him and to use them to the utmost of his ability so that God's house will be wonderful and beautiful. Sure, people will congratulate him. 
admire his work, but does not God still receive the glory for that? Bazalel, a work of the Creator, can construct something which moves other humans to wonder and amazement. Yet he is just one product, one piece of God's grand plan. So let me read you a quote from a book called Emotional Healthy Spirituality by Peter Skazara. As Irenaeus said many centuries ago, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. We are not called by God to die to the good parts of who we are. God never asked us to die to the healthy pleasures and desires of life, to friendships, joy, art, music, beauty, recreation, laughter, and nature. God plants desires in our hearts so that we will nurture and enjoy them. Often these desires and passions are invitations from God, gifts from Him, yet somehow we feel guilty unwrapping these presents. When I ask people, tell me about your wishes, hopes, and dreams, they are often speechless. Why do you ask, they respond. Isn't my only wish, hope, and dream supposed to be to serve Jesus? Not exactly. God never asks us to annihilate ourselves. We are not to become non-persons when we become Christians. The opposite is true. God intends our deeper, truer self, which He created, that which is good in us, to blossom as we follow Him. God has endowed us each with certain essential qualities that reflect and express Him in a unique way. In fact, an essential part of the sanctification process, becoming more like Jesus, is allowing the Holy Spirit to strip away the false constructs we have accumulated so that our true selves in Christ can emerge. Let me clarify what he says about our Wishes, hopes, and dreams are not just supposed to be to serve Jesus. He's not denying that all we do is supposed to be for Jesus, but he's attacking a common belief that Jesus' hopes and wishes must almost always run contrary to our desires. It may sound like, I really enjoy nature, art, or making things, or whatever it is for you. And it is something that you think about a ton. You get excited about this thing. You may feel passionate about growing in your abilities in that area in a sense, and it makes you feel alive in a, sense, a way to pursue these, these ways that God has made you. Scazzaro is saying that many people, when they reach that point, are frightened and feel that their love for some craft or trade is going to threaten their love of God. So they suppress it. He's arguing, and I believe that he is correct, that that skill or trade may be something that God has created in you, a gift to be used for His service, to be grown and nurtured, and that God will use it to glorify Himself. So don't attack the gift. Attack the pride. Don't kill the good part of you that God has blessed, the gifts He has given you. Submit it to His Spirit's redeeming power. Let it be guided by knowing His Word and what He wants for all humanity. Humble yourself and remember that all good things come from our Father. He created you to make and to create. In learning your trade, your occupation, you are being an image of your Father who is the ultimate creator and maker. Your excellence 
when rightly understood and communicated as coming from the Father, glorifies Him. Kill the sin, the pride, and let the Spirit redeem and magnify what is good. I think about humanitarian efforts. Often, when taking much-needed food and medical supplies to an area, humanitarian organizations have to be wary of warlords or drug cartels or other evil groups that will come in and snatch up these good things for their own benefit. So they work with different countries and military powers to secure areas to protect the good food and medicine and help all that they can. After recognizing that the warlords and drug lords intend to use the supplies for their own purposes, humanitarian organizations could just stop sending supplies. They could suppress the good out of the fear for how evil may use it. Satan may tempt you in the same way with your gifts. He may cause you to fear how he can use your gift as an occasion for sin, to incite pride in you, to make you think much of yourself, to forget your father who gave you the gift. But Satan is not all-powerful. Our God can protect the gifts he has given you and use them for his purposes. God can use your gifts to expose self-centeredness in your heart, to expose pride and selfishness in your own heart, so that you may put it to death in Christ and be more conformed into the image of Christ. Attack the sin, resist the devil, not your gifts from Father. Brothers and sisters, God has made us to be workers in this world, just like he made Bazalel and Aholiab and all the other artisans to be excellent in their craft so that they may use it to glorify their creator, God. Your ministry, your non-ministry work is not valueless, but what ministry hopes to return everyone to, to redeem lives for the sake of our Father, so that we as a species may be united in glorifying and using our gifts from our Father to bring glory to Him. Protect the good gifts and tend to them so that your good works may shine before others and you may be able to glorify your Father in heaven with them. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you orchestrate and ordain our lives shape and make us. Father, that you give us gifts and good things so that we may turn around and be more in love with you and give ourselves back wholly to you. But Father, help to protect us. Help us to pursue excellence in all that you have called us to, while at the same time remembering that our excellence is a gift from you. That all these gifts and trades and things that you've gifted us in are meant to point people back to their God who created this world with just speaking. That, Father, you were able to speak into nothing, and it became something. That we're part of that something that you've made to work and to tend to this creation to make more things for your glory. I pray that you would just be with us, that your spirit would anoint us in all that we labor to do. In your name I pray. Amen.